Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By rallying research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job, and your listeners are super lucky to have you, and it's always my pleasure. Chris Garrow is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the kickoff show for season number 10 of Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I couldn't be more excited about starting a new season of the show. Throughout the month of March, I'm going to be joined by legends like Hal Sutton, John Cook, Bob Ford, Tim Simpson, and Frank Nabilo. Top instructors like Susie Whaley, Rob Strano, John Hughes, and of course, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. And people doing great things around the golf industry like Paul Doherty, Jack Curry, and Bart Romano. And tonight, folks, we're going to kick things off in grand style. And who better to be my first guest of the year than our resident director of instruction and multi-time Hall of Famer, oh, by the way, Tom Patry. Right after TP, I'm going to be joined by a five-time winner on the PGA Tour, Jim Gallagher Jr., Following Jim, I'll be joined by 1978 PGA champion and 1986 players champion, John Mahaffey. And then we're going to round things out with the founder of On Point Golf, Briston Peterson. So a fantastic show in store for you this week and this month here on Next on the Tee. And as always, folks, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. I always like to kick things off by reminding you about our friends over at the Macklemore. We are partnering again with them this season. And as you guys know, my buddies and I have gone there for our annual golf trip the last two years. And it's such a wonderful place. The accommodations that they give you are fantastic. But the practice facility is great, complete with driving range and their Himalayas putting course. Plus, they've got a six-hole short course, which is a great way to warm up before your round or have a lot of fun and play with a wedge and beer in hand following your round. The on-premise restaurant is called The Craig. They have great food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is an understatement. It's co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. PGA Tour caddy and one of my favorite guests here on the show, Kip Henley, said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. And Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See for yourself how outstanding the course and the resort are by going online to themaclemore.com. I also want to remind you about our friends over at TaylorMade and their all-new Stealth 2 driver. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance, but there's also another thing we want, and that's forgiveness. And that's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon and even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, Visit them online at tailormadegolf.com. I also want to tell you about Lampkin Grips. Every shot has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. 
and comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of our Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability, while fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot, but the feel in your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. Okay, now back in Next on the Tee with me. Just like we have been blessed for the last several seasons, we get to have that blessing again this season is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. You can find Tom at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club in Naples, Florida. So if you're anywhere near Southwest Florida and you want to play your best golf ever this season, go online to TomPatry.com and book a lesson. If you can't get down to Naples, download the V1 video app and send Tom videos of your swing through the app. Please check out his website, like I say, TomPatry.com, but also give him a follow on Instagram at TomPatryGolf. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can watch over 300 free video lessons. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. He is in the Florida Southern University Athletics Hall of Fame, and he's also, and I just learned this today, in the Sunshine State Conference Hall of Fame. Not sure how much it cost him to get in there, but I verified he is, in fact, an inductee, and I'm very excited he is back with me again this season on Next on the T. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? Chrissy boy, here we go. <laughs> here we go is right. Before we get started, now this is kind of a milestone episode for us, my friend. 70th, really? 70th time you've been a, a part of this show. So, so clearly I'm bringing you down on a bi-weekly basis, having me on 70 <laughs> times. <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't do better than me 70 times, you, you might want to think about checkers or chess or something, something else. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got my Tom Patrick money like Florida Southern and the Sunshine Conference did. Oh, so God, I, I may I may need to work on that. By the by the way, both those inductions were in a previous century. So that that, <laughs> that you know, there you go. <laughs> so and another thing that's different between us this year is we've actually seen each other in person now. Yeah, how about that? We had we had a good time, Chris. It was great yeah, having dinner did. with you at the PGA show. Uh we partnered up there at the show with uh, Jeff Lofstead and Meredith Shuler from the South Florida PGA, and uh, they were they were nice they were nice enough to join us and meet you. And it was it was so great to finally meet you in person. That was really enjoyable. Uh, my my thanks to you, my friend. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for the night. It was one of the better nights that I've had in a long time. So I appreciate you, my friend. All right, so let's get into it, Tom. The the battle between the PGA Tour and Live continues to dominate golf news the pga tour has reacted to live by essentially copying everything they do most recently they decided that all the changes that they made last year on the pga tour like making the top players play in all but one of the elevated events or throwing at that out for next year players won't have to do that because you know that's just too many tournaments that they have to play hmm. in maybe they'll get back down to the 15 that they used to be or maybe the 14 like they do over on live they got 20 million dollar purses now just like live there's no cut events next season. Reduced fields for those events as well, just like they do on Live. They had a players-only meeting today, Tom. I'm sure you saw that, and I'm guessing that they they are going to announce that those guys can wear shorts too, because that's about the only thing that they're not doing on the PGA the uh, PGA Tour that they are doing on Live. So help me understand, TP. Why didn't the tour just do all of this stuff last year and save us all the heartache? So, Chris, first of all, uh, the PGA Tour and Liv have nothing to do with each other. Let me make a few points that you missed. And I, I don't want to correct you because, you know, you know you're one of my favorite idols in the whole world. But <laughs> let's just step back. The PGA Tour um, plays 72 holes. 
Okay. They don't shotgun start. They don't have blaring music. And it's actually a competitive event. And the bottom of the field in a regular PGA Tour event, in a non-elevated tour event, the last 20 players in that field could give the last 20 players on the live tour shots on each side and beat them easily. So let's not get carried away. Okay. <laughs> One has nothing to do with the other. The PGA tour is, is the elite tour on this planet and live is nothing but a, uh, a glorified golf. Outing. All right. So let's take that a step further. Where's live golf two years from now. Do they exist? Have they folded the tents <clears throat> up? Have they merged back into the PGA tour? Where do you think they are? Well, for our, for our listeners out there, um, you and I, they don't know that you and I talk on a regular basis most mornings when I'm on my way to work. A lot of times we talk about things that are going on. And I told you uh, point blank, I think we made a little wager the other morning that I think two years from now, Liv doesn't exist. Um, the the ratings for the first CW broadcast were, were just a, a fraction behind the Andy Griffith show and reruns <laughs> of F Troop. So... <laughs> so that tells you who was tuned in. I don't know who was tuned in, but it was somebody in Slovakia, in the mountains of Slovakia, watching <laughs> watching that event. So uh, they have no juice. They're getting. They're, I think they have less juice on a daily basis. Um, I don't think they exist two years from now. You're not buying that they had 3.2 million uh, viewers last week uh, across all platforms. You're not, you're yeah, not buying and, that and, number. And I think when we we look at that number and we look at where those numbers came from. They were from some pretty obscure places, places on the planet. Um, <laughs> you know, they weren't U.S. numbers, that's for sure. Um, listen, golf is a worldwide game. There's no doubt about it. But unless you have U.S. viewership and a, and a very, very healthy U.S. viewership, you're not going anywhere. So um, if you want to tune in to CW and, and catch their, their, their um, broadcast right after the Andy Griffith show and right before F Troop, you, you go right ahead. There is no way I'm tuning in to watch a shotgun start with blaring music and, and no cut. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna listen. Can you name? Can you name the tenth through fifteenth money winners on the Live Tour currently? No. Okay. Good. Could, and you obviously the household names you can name. And you probably get about ten deep because you you watch golf. You're you're a golf yeah, yeah. fan. I'm a golf fan. We we could name the top ten players pretty easily. But after you get out of ten, you'd be struggling to name eleven through twenty. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Okay. You know. So w w w let's just stop the nonsense. It's <laughs> it's you know it's not it's not even golf. Keep going. Next topic, please. <laughs> All right, so we're, we're on the heels of the Arnold Palmer Invitational, and, and Tom, I couldn't believe how many short putts the guys were missing Ooh. during the final round, especially Jordan Spieth, who probably should have won the tournament going away, but he couldn't make a five-footer. Jordan Spieth looked a little bit like my uh, third-place finishing at Crown Colony's Ladies, Ladies' Club Championship this past week. Um, that, was, that was a, you know, Chris, here's the one thing I don't understand. I still don't get this. Let's go back a couple years to Jordan Spieth's most remarkable year. I mean, he had an he had an epic year. What was that? Seventeen 15, or eighteen? Fifteen. Fifteen. That's a long time ago now. Fifteen. Yeah. Do you remember that he putted? Not only he putted remarkably well and unbelievably well from ten feet and in. And if you remember and go back to those broadcasts, he was putting, you know, kind of kind of radically looking at the hole. Okay. 
He yeah. was he would set up, he'd turn and look at the hole and he'd make the stroke. He made everything, everything. Okay. Yeah. So he obviously has that on film and on video captured. You know, he, he knows that that's what he was doing to make those putts. Why, why, why did he go away from that? And, and as bad as it is right now, why wouldn't he go back to it and try it again? Right. Explain right. That to me. I mean, I don't, get, I don't get it. I mean, not only did he miss those four or five, five or six footers coming down a stretch, he didn't touch the hole. Right. He, I mean, he didn't, it wasn't even close. It was God awful. Um, I don't get it. I, I'm sorry. I just don't get it. And Tom, over the years, we've heard players complain about how hard Bay Hill is last year. <coughs> it was actually the toughest course on tour outside of the majors. We, you, you look, you look back at guys that, you know, the, the greens are too crusty. They're too fast or too this or too that is Bay Hill too tough. Uh, is Oakland too tough? Is Shinnecock too tough? You know, is, is Olympic club too tough? Is Oakland Hills too tough? Is Oak Hill too tough? Um, no, I mean, listen, people like, I think birdies are entertaining. Eagles are certainly entertaining. One of the reasons that we love the masters is all the drama on the back nine on Sunday, the reachable par fives and things that can be done coming down the stretch. But you know what? I, I like to see those boys grind it out sometimes. You know, I, 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 I don't, I got to tell you as a, as a golf fan, I enjoy seeing them, you know, with a little bit of heat and a little bit of struggle. Um, it makes them mortal. You know, it makes them yes. human again. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. is Bay Hill tough? Bay Hill is very difficult. And is Bay Hill set up very difficult? Extremely difficult. And you get those greens, you take the water off those greens coming into the weekend, they get a little crusty and a little bit firm and fast. And you have deep Bermuda rough and, and, and you get the wind blowing a little bit in Orlando. It, it's, 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 not, it's not a picnic by any stretch of the imagination. Do I think we should back off on it? Not really. I think the objection, Chris, is that the Florida swing, when you play PGA National in a non-elevated event, which is a hard golf course, and then you come to Bay Hill, and then you go to TPC. And by the way, a non-elevated event at Valspar at Copperhead is a hard golf course too. That's a that's a tough stretch of golf right there, um, for both for the elevated events and the non-elevated events. So is that too much in a short time period where they just getting their brains beat in it's it's certainly that easy it's not yeah. i mean they, those guys probably look at that florida swing oh man i'm glad that was over <laughs> i got out of there i'm still breathing you know you actually got to spend some time with mr palmer <clears throat> at both bay hill and latrobe country club what was that like you know um arnold had this unique ability um to you know while you were pardon my French, crapping your pants from meeting him the first time. He had this unbelievable ability to make you instantly comfortable. He made it about you. Uh, he didn't make it about him. Uh, he was genuinely interested in what you were doing in your life and what you were doing in your golf game. Um, he was extremely passionate. And we know how passionate he was. That, that's well documented. Um, I, I fell in love with the guy. Uh, I, I was a fan before I met him, a huge fan. I mean, he and Seve were always my two heroes. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between those two in terms of their passion and the way they went about playing the game. But uh, the first time I met him, I had, I had lunch with him with a man named Jim Bell, who was tournament director at Bay Hill for a while and a good friend of his. I didn't know I was going to have lunch with him. Jim kind of surprised me. Uh, when he walked across the dining room at Bay Hill to sit down with us, I was, I was choking like a dog. I was, I was a 20-year-old <laughs> junior at Florida Southern. 
And uh, he sat down and within, I'm telling you, Chris, within 90 seconds, he made you feel comfortable and at ease. Uh, he had that ability that, you know, it was, it was a unique ability to do that. And uh, I, 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 you know, it was whatever I felt about him before that meeting, it was quadrupled after that meeting. He was just a special dude. And then I got, I got a chance, like you said, uh, the year before he passed to spend a day with him up at Latrobe. Um, I had never been there before. And, and that was something I'll never forget ever. Ever. For those of us that want to make the trek to Latrobe now, is it a is it a beautiful golf course? Is it is it more of a you know kind of a museum in in honor of Mr. Palmer and how he got started? What's what's Latrobe like? We have we've never seen it. For you know, obviously we get to see Bay Hill at the at the API, but we yeah. never see what Latrobe's like. I I don't call Latrobe a country club. I call it a club in the country. You know, it's uh, it was his home. It was uh, it, it's 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 not ostentatious at all it's kind of very very laid back it's tucked away in western pennsylvania there's a barn out on the property and in that barn i got to visit it uh, because of arnold um that that has every single artifact you can imagine from his career stored in that barn. the penzoil tractors in there every golf bag he ever had after he turned professionals in there every Ryder cup bag every pair of golf shoes he ever owned is in there wow every golf now think about this every golf club he's ever owned is in there um, every advertisement, poster board, uh, picture that was on TV is hung on the wall. It's a, it is a, it's like a museum, and uh, I think you can probably arrange to see it by by calling out there. And, and you know they they actually uh, were very open about letting the group of guys I brought there go see it and, and walk through it and everything. It's it's a phenomenal place. I'm hoping, and I've heard rumor that they're going to. Uh, restorate the facility and and clean it up and and spruce it up and build some lodging and possibly turn the barn into a museum. If that happens, if that happens, it's like a trip to Mecca on on the golf side. Uh, it's a must do. Um, but it reeks of Arnold. Every every place you turn and every corner you turn, um, it, it was it was a special day spending time there with him. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. And as one of the, the best instructors ever in this game, as far as I'm concerned, um, want to get your thoughts, particularly um, the, the impact an instructor can have at, on players at the top level, at the pro level. We talked about a month ago about the impact uh, that instructors can have and guys returning <clears throat> to previous coaches. And your thoughts, if Tiger had never had Butch, if Butch was never in his life as as an instructor do you think tiger with his immense talent still has the same career that we've seen him have or or is some of that at least a little bit of that due to butch's influence in teaching i think certainly tiger um you know if if asked honestly uh during those early years if butch elevated his game and, and took him to a place he hadn't dreamed of being before listen tiger woods is an incredible talent don't get me wrong would he have been tiger the way we know him today without those early years of Butch, that's hard to say. I, I, I'd have to push the no button on that one. Um, Butch is a very special talent, um, just like Tiger is a special talent. And there's certain combinations of people that get together different parts of their career, like Ledbetter with Faldo. You, know, you can talk about certain relationships, Chuck Cook with Payne Stewart. Um, you, can, you can go to certain relationships in golf that are very, very unique and very impactful. And I think that was maybe the most unique and impactful combination ever. I'll go a step further, Chris. I, I would venture to guess if they had never had their falling out, um, Tiger would already be at Nicholas's record. 
Um, I really believe that. I mean, I think that that relationship was that special. Uh, I think it's a shame historically that they had their they had their falling out and everything because that was a very very unique relationship uh, with you know maybe the best player that walked on the planet and, and in my opinion in my opinion the best instructor in the game ever in Butch Harmon. Yeah, so that uh, to your point, and I've had Gary Player say this on this show several times. And if Tiger had never changed his swing, he would have won 25 to 30 majors. And, and we know that there was a lot of pressure on the knees and, and stuff like that from the golf swing that he had. But to your point, if he sticks it out with Butch and, and they make whatever adjustments they needed to make to take some of the pressure off, boy, did he win 20, 25, 30 majors? I, I think he wins more majors than Nicholas won. Let's put it that way. I don't know if we get the third. That's a... That's a pretty incredible number, but we get, we get, we get, we, we edge Jack out at this point. And, and, uh, and, and I think Butch was also, um, you know, with Earl passing away, I think Butch would have been a much more stable influence. I think, I think when Earl passed away, um, Tiger got a little bit off, off the, uh, off the freeway yeah. and, and down some side roads there a little bit personally. Uh, I think Butch would have been a little bit more stable influence, a little more of a father figure too, as well. Butch is, Butch is a unique combination, Chris, of an incredible X's and O's guy, but also an incredible mentor and an incredible coach. And coaching golf and teaching golf are very different, very very different skill sets. Um, I've worked very hard in my career to become a better coach with my better players, uh, and, and Butch has influenced me in thinking that way. Um, as has Bill Strasbaugh and some other people, but, um, yeah, I think that, I think, I think we would have seen, you know, incredible records set under Butch's tutelage. Yeah. Tom, let's talk about being an, an instructor nowadays, because when you and I grew up a very different time, now young players, parents of those young players, they all want to hear about how good little Johnny is or how good little Susie is. They all want participation trophies for just being involved and being out there playing. And, and we grew up and it wasn't that way at all. What's it like being an instructor in today's world? I think if I participated in that, in that uh, genre, I, I would have a lot more money in my bank account right now. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot more money. And, and I, I, but I, I don't think I could also sleep at night if I did that. Um, I, I have a, I have a huge objection to that philosophy. Um, I don't know. Not only think it's good for their golf. I don't think it's good for their life skills and, and their future. Um, it's it's a, as you know, and as I know, and people listening know, it's a it's a pretty tough world out there in 2023. And um, softening up Johnny or or Mary, um, and patting him on the back and telling them they're wonderful when they're not, is is not a great direction to go. Um, I get accused constantly of being a little bit too tough on my students sometimes. Um, and when they leave me, I go back and I remember what Bill told me, Bill Strasberg told me a lot of time, long time ago, he said, if they leave you, Tom, they never were yours anyway. Um, and the people who stay with me tend to be successful in, in their, in their journey. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I do things a certain way. It's not for everybody. Um, but I look back at the kids that I've developed, not only as golfers, but as human beings. And they're, they've been pretty damn successful as human beings. So I'm going to keep doing what I do. Tom, I'm going to do something that's very painful 
for me to do. And that's give you credit for something you told me a couple of weeks ago. You know how much I hate that. Um, <laughs> and I think you're going to be right about this one. And you were telling me about Pearson Cootie. You told me to watch out for this kid, that he's going to be really good. Talk about why you think that. I, uh, I had the pleasure of, uh, of caddying for one of my college players, I think two years ago in the Jones Cup on, uh, on Sea Island at Ocean Forest. And we were paired with Pearson Cootie two rounds during that tournament. It was a very difficult golf course in very difficult condition, very difficult weather conditions. And I had heard about Pearson and Parker Cootie, the twins that went to Texas, uh, although I'd never seen them live. Um, and Pearson was in our group in the, uh, I think the second and third rounds, if I'm not mistaken, because I'm thinking back, but, um, I have never been in my 44 years as impressed with a young man hitting golf shots under difficult conditions on a hard golf course for two days as I was by this kid. Um, not only does he have length, but he has the ability to find the center of the club face on a very regular basis. He has the ability to control his trajectories, his shot shapes. He can go both ways with it. He can turn it right to left. He can hold it off and move it to the right if he has to. His trajectory control, which is always a sign for me of a good player playing in windy conditions, was phenomenal. Uh, his touch and feel around the greens were, was, were, were, were tour quality. He rolled the ball with the flat stick, which you know, short game, short game, short game catches my eye right away. He had great speed control on the greens. He had great imagination on the greens. I didn't see a flaw in his game. I didn't see anything. He has very good length, extremely good length. He's not a big person, but he's a very, very, he's what I call a little wide body. He looks like a little, a little spark plug. I mean, he's just wide and strong, um, creates a lot of speed, but he controls the face of the club beautifully. Um, and he, I just, just impressed me. And, and, and by the way, a really nice kid, really nice. And as we wow. know, his grandfather was Charlie Cootie, who won the Masters. So he's right. got some pretty, pretty good DNA. His brother Parker's not bad either, by the way. Uh, I think Pearson's a little bit better. Um, and I just thought, I said, this kid's a no. This is like, you know. And listen, we've had we put that no miss tag on a lot of people, and yeah, and it's not happened. But I think the the real serious golf fan out there should keep an eye on on Pearson Cootie. And as you know, we had a nice showing this past week. Yeah, no, tied for fourteenth at Bay Hill. So yeah, we've seen him come along. He actually, uh, the week before at the Honda had, had a nice opening round and, and made the cut there too. I think one of the things that you said, and it's, and it's hard, it's, it's gotta be really hard to coach. You, you see, he's, he's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of the moment. It's not going to get too big for him. How do you teach your students to handle when it comes time for the big moment? I try to put them in situations, Chris, a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'll give you a very, very, um, low level example i've got two ladies at crown county right now who are really good athletes uh one played college basketball and coached college basketball uh on a big time level and she's a really good athlete and she's really struggling with the moment a lot right now and trying to be competitive um golf is different you know i mean when you play your reactionary sports like you play shortstop and they hit a line drive it you react to catch it when you're when you when you're dribbling down court and you make a cross-court bounce pass to somebody breaking down the right wing if that's a reactionary move, tennis, you react to a serve golf. We have too much time to think we, we walk between shots. Uh, you know, we have a lot of time to think about what just happened and what's about to happen. It's very, very hard. There's two things you can't control. You can't control the past that already happened and you can't control the future. It hasn't happened yet. 
you have to be in the moment in golf. And, and sometimes the moment is prolonged. And when, you, when you're in a prolonged moment and you're, you're having trouble breathing and choking your guts out, it takes a special skill set to stay calm, to calm your heartbeat, to think clearly and make good decisions, and then swing the golf club in a, in a reasonable tempo and balance and find the middle of the club face. Uh, I don't think the general public watching people play professional golf on TV, whether it's the ladies' tour or the men's tour, realize how special these people are when they hit a, a you know a, a six iron from 183 yards in a crosswind over a bunker to a back left pin, you know, off a downhill side hill lie. I'm just making that up, but you understand what I'm saying. It, it's it's an incredible skill. Uh, it's an incredible skill, and and it takes really really staying in the moment to do those things. Uh, it's, it's, it's a developed skill. Tom, we're going to introduce a new segment on this show with you Uh-oh. this year. Uh-oh. Yeah, look out. And we're going to call it Tom's tip of the week. And we'll have a section on next on the T.net dedicated. So people can go there and see what you're teaching us and look at what the whole season was like and all the things that you helped us do better. All your little pearls of wisdom <coughs> and tip number one, and I understand you recently made a change in your bag for a club that's more forgiving and easier to hit. Talk about what that club is. So, Chris, I, I've always been a big believer in fitted golf clubs. Uh, you know, and I, I've, I've worked with a lot of really talented fitters in my life. Uh, the guys at Pete, Pete's Golf on Long Island when I was on, in the New York days, uh, Woody Lashin was my fitter up there, and I, I miss him very much. And they, they were really talented, and they really steered me down the correct path as far as understanding club fitting and the importance of the aspects of club fitting. And now in Naples, Woody's you know, 1,200 miles away, and I've started a relationship with the fellows of club champion. Um, and there's a guy in town here, Ian Person, who's the manager of club champion in Naples, and I kind of lean on him really hard. He does all Rocco Media's clubs, and there's a lot of guys on the champions tour. Uh, and I went to him recently and said, you know, Ian, I'm, I'm thinking about making a change. Am I crazy? Um, and, and I had a hybrid in my bag that it was, a, you know, you know, as, as you know, all my clubs are titles clubs and, and it was a good, it was a good hybrid and I hit nicely, but I didn't launch it very high. And I, I really had trouble with front pins and, uh, and, and I just felt like the sweet spot was not as forgiving as I'd like it to be. And I said, am I crazy thinking about putting a seven wood in my bag? And, and could I dial a seven wood into the distance I'm hitting this hybrid to? And what could I launch it higher? And, and could I, you know, is it more forgiving? And he, and he said, yes, it is. It would be. And we did a little experiment. We came up with some specs and I went to my folks at Titleist at the factory and they, and they, they built a club for me and it came in about two and a half or three weeks ago now. And it's been a game changer. Um, at 64 years old, I don't have the speed I used to have and I've got to have a club on longer par fours and longer par threes that I can hit uh, with a lot of confidence and, and, you know, when I don't hit a dead center in the face, still get something out of it. Well, the comparison between that and the hybrid I had in my bag has been remarkable. I mean, the ability to, to, to fight the ball, the ability to miss hit a golf shot and still get some kind of result that I can play has been phenomenal. So I've made this change. The hybrid came out, the seven wood went in, and it's been, it's been really beneficial. And I think for the average player out there to find the golf club that they can play from longer distances that they have that kind of confidence in and hit it up in the air so they can land it on the green and keep it on the green is, is a, is a, is a huge factor. 
Um, so having your clubs fit and going to somebody that's really good at that skill, because fitting is a skill. I mean, we have track man, but the, a guy like Ian Persings and a guy like Woody Lashen have the ability to take track man data and then based on their long-term experience, tweak that data a little bit and find that first perfect combination of golf club head, loft, shaft, flex, weight, torque, uh, all these different factors and put it in somebody's hand. Um, it's a real skill. It's a real skill. Tom, before I let you go, you know, I've got Jim Gallagher Jr. joining me next. You guys played against one another when you were at Florida Southern. I wanted to get your memories of Jim. Jim Gallagher is, is um, and I, don't, I haven't seen Jim in ages, but please say hi, first of all. Jim Gallagher always impressed me as, as a, just an absolute class act. Uh, people might have forgotten how good Jim Gallagher was, but let me refresh your memory. As a college player, as an All-American at Tennessee, he was a really good player, one of the best college players in the nation um, for a number of years. And, and, and uh, he put more beatings on me than I was fortunate enough to put on him, no doubt. <laughs> Um, and then played the tour, was on a Ryder Cup team. How many wins did he have, Chris? On tour, five, five on the five, PGA tour, five on the PGA tour. I mean, and now he's transitioned into uh, into the world of broadcasting, and I think he does a phenomenal job, brings great insight. Uh, he's he's very golf centric, he's got a very, very high golf IQ, but more than all those things, he is a, a just a quality human being. And and uh, please give him my best because uh. He was, he's one of my all-time favorites and one of my favorite memories of college golf. There you go. Will do. Before I let you go, my friend, you got to remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with you and all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you on your website or on social media? Uh, you know, the easiest way is www.tompatry.com, Chris, but all, all the things, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all those platforms there. Um, and uh, I'll be at Crown Colony 75% uh, of the time this summer for the first time in 44 years, staying in Florida, doing a few golf schools out of Florida around the country, a couple of speaking engagements up in Westchester County, New York in July. Uh, I'm actually doing a speaking engagement in, in a restaurant in July in Westchester County with a guy named Joe LaCava. So oh, that'll be a, that'll be a I've heard that name somewhere. Yeah, he's, he's an old friend. Him and Freddie are old friends. Um, so that'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. But before I let you go, my friend, you're the best at what you do. It's a privilege to be on with you 70 times with you. You should be getting rid of me and getting somebody else with some talent on here. Um, <laughs> but thank you, God. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, please give Jimmy my best, uh, my love to him. He's, he's just a wonderful guy. And, and you're blessed to have him on. Yes, I am. I, I couldn't agree with that more. TP, thank you, my friend. You're the best. I'm, I'm excited to share another season of the show with you. And uh, stay safe out there. And uh, we'll catch up in a couple of weeks. Peace, brother. See you, man. That is the great Tom Patry. TomPatry.com and follow him on Instagram at TomPatryGolf. Be sure to subscribe to his YouTube channel, Boatload of Free Playing Lessons, available for you there. I just, I, I love the man and already looking forward to what we're going to talk about uh, when he comes back on in a couple of weeks. Before I get to my next guest, Jim Gallagher Jr., I want to talk to you about two under men's performance brief. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. 
The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tea box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. And you walk a lot of miles in life and on the course, so make sure you're walking in the right shoes. Scone changes the game with an affordable line of the most comfortable, versatile, slip-on golf shoes that can be worn anywhere. They're made with breathable microfiber fabric, spikeless treads, and an adjustable lace lock. And they're easy to clean, too. So spend less time changing shoes and more time living in them. Visit scony.com and use code NXTONT20. So next on T20 at checkout for 20% off. That's scony.com, S-K-O-N-I.com. They're also available at golf specialty retailers and green grass pro shops nationwide. All right, now back with me here and next on the tee is Jim Gallagher Jr. Let me remind you about Jim's background. He's from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, just down the road from my hometown of Pittsburgh. Grew up in Indiana, played his college golf, like Tom Patrick just said, at the University of Tennessee, where he is the most decorated player in UT men's golf history. Lettered all four years from 1980 to 83, was named the Volunteers Rookie of the Year that freshman year of 1980, helped them win the, their first SEC championship that season, tied for fifth in that SEC championship on his own. In 1981, he won the Eastern Kentucky Invitational. He was named All-American in 1982 and All-SEC in 80 and 82. And in that 1982 season, he also won the Indiana Amateur and was named Team MVP. 1983 was a big season, repeated at the Indiana Amateur, and added wins at the Indiana Open and Wildcat Invitational. Plus, he was presented with the team's leadership award. Played in the NCAA tournament in 1980, 81, and 82 and helped the Vols to a 6th, 7th, and 21st place finishes. Turned pro in 83, and the PGA Tour got out on there in 1984, won five times on the PGA Tour, and was a member, as Tom also said, of the victorious 1993 Ryder Cup team and the 1994 President's Cup. Inducted into the Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame in 1995, and last summer he joined his wife Sissy as a member of the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame, and I am thrilled he is with me tonight. Here on Next on the T. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming back on the show. I got to get you down mute, Jimmy. There we go. How's there that? There we go. Oh, yeah. Tom should have been over here to help me. <laughs> He's not good techno technologically Well, I'm worse either. than he was. I couldn't even get hooked up. <laughs> How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. Uh, got up here in my little studio I'm going to have uh, here. So I've got my own decor, so it's not quite ready to go. But I did the best I could with what I got. Ah, appreciate you. So, Jim, what was it like last summer to join your wife, Sissy, in the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame? That was an incredible uh, evening. And, and just, uh, I mean, it's amazing to go in there with her. She's such an incredible player. 12 state AMs, uh, gave up playing so she could be the, the you know, my wife and, and the mom of my four children. And I'm not sure I would have done that, but she sure did. And she's an incredible person. And it's uh, it was an incredible night. All the kids were there. Uh, I, I just... I'm amazed. I mean, you look at all the great athletes that are in that Hall of Fame, and to see me in there, it's very humbling, uh, to say the least. Jim, I, I know you got your first win on the PGA Tour at the 1990 Greater Milwaukee Open, but I believe your first professional win came five years earlier in Hattiesburg, oh, by yep. the way, 
at the old Magnolia Classic, which is now the Sanderson Farms Championship. You beat Paul Azinger in a playoff. Talk about what it was like getting your first pro win there. Yeah, I'd lost my card and was playing what they called the Tournament Player Series. I think they had six events. The leading money winner got their card, and it was rained out the first day, and it was only 36 holes. Uh, but I did beat Paul in the first hole in the playoff, and you know, Paul went on to have an incredible career. I always told him after I beat him, it kind of helped his career move along. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it it gave me the confidence that I could play on that level. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing I took from that. And, and uh, you know, it took me a few years to win on the PGA Tour. And I had a great run from 90 to 95 or 6. I started having, you know, a bunch of kids and just kind of felt like I wanted to be home uh, when I turned about 40. And, you know, I don't regret giving up those years of playing. Because uh, I was with my kids and I have an incredible relationship with them. I now have three grandsons, got two more grandchildren coming in the next month or two. So wow, I've been real blessed and, and it's just really cool. Uh, we actually have my grandson, Jack, with me, uh, James Thomas uh, Gallagher IV, uh, my son Thomas's son. And it's just so much uh, when you look back and, and all the great things you said about my career, I, I'm just, uh, I sit back and have to pinch myself sometimes of what I accomplished. Uh, you know, probably could have won a few more times, but overall, like I said, just a blessed uh, career. And just, I look back and I, everyone says, do you miss competing? I miss competing and winning and playing at that top level. I miss the guys. I miss the, all that stuff. But because I'm doing TV now, I'm able to kind of still feel like I'm part of golf. And I think that's the great part of, of working for Golf Channel. I still feel part of it. These guys are so good that are playing the PGA Tour now. Uh, and there's just so many of them. You know, when you look back at our best players versus their best, it'd be tough to compare that. But when you look at just the depth, uh, week in, week out, uh, these these guys are so much better prepared than I was. Yeah, college golf, it's on TV. And I think that's uh, really helped a lot of these men and the women, uh, both when they, the women to get ready for the LPGA. I think they play in front of cameras. They get used to doing interviews. I think it's just incredible when you look back at where golf was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and, and even when I was playing. Jim, I want to talk uh, about a couple of more of the tournaments that you played. And I had Tom Pertzer join me a, a couple of weeks ago. And you, Tom, and Greg Norman squared off in a playoff at the 1991 World Series of Golf. The three of you, the only players to break par that week. You guys tied at one under going into that playoff. Talk about what it was like battling not only those two guys, but Firestone at the time. Well, that was one of the hardest golf courses we played. And I had a lot of relatives, cousins that were there. And there had to be 20 or 40 of them every year. And I always seemed to play well there. I think more that the family was there. But, man, it if your game had any weaknesses, it exposed it. And I think that's one of the beautiful things there. Uh, Tom Perster, what a great golf swing. What a great person. And, uh, you know, the playoff, I, I felt like I could have won that year. But, you know, he ended up winning. But it was I was nervous on the, you know, getting there at the end. I hit an incredible shot out of the bunker at 17 out of the fairway bunker, knocked it on the green. Uh, and, and those are just memories that I always have. I lost my cousin uh, a month or two ago who was part of that following. Uh, and I just remember all those times. And I kind of went back through some of the pictures and all that. And those are some of my greatest memories being part of with your family. And I think that's uh, what made the tour so much fun. You know, when my kids were traveling, Mary Langdon and Thomas, the tour was great. And then they started getting to the age where they didn't travel. And I missed that part. Uh, but one thing my friend Bruce Litsky told me, some of the best advice I ever had, he said, when you're on the golf course, your mind has to be on the golf course. When you're home, it needs to be home. And I think no athlete knows when it's time to retire or give it up. 
but I, I just felt like that was some of the best advice. And I struggled uh, when I first kind of quit at 40 as I, I wanted to be playing. Then I got out playing. I wished I was back home. Uh, and I guess it was four or five years ago when I finally just hung it up. Uh, I had my son Thomas caddying for me down on the coast in, in Biloxi. And I said, Thomas, I want you to caddy for me. Having no idea this was probably going to be my last event on the Champs Tour. And we walked up on 18 and I just handed him my putter and I said, that's it. I'm done. And he said, you can't quit. You love it too much. And I said, exactly. I love it too much. I just can't put the time in that it takes to be great. Uh, and I wanted you to be part of that. And my grandson, Tommy, was there. My uh, Mary Langdon, my daughter. So no one knew I was going to do it. My wife's still mad at me because I didn't tell her I was going <laughs> to kind of retire. But I just kind of walked off into the sunset, drove back to the Mississippi Delta. And uh, lo and behold, uh, it was just uh, it was so great to have him on the bag and spend that uh, that last uh, trip around uh, the golf course with him. Go back to 1993 at the Tour Championship. You shoot a course record 63 in the opening round. You hold off Norman this time to win the tournament, which had the richest purse in golf at that yeah. time. You earned the largest winning paycheck ever. What was it like not only beating Greg Norman to win the tournament, but then also to see your name beside that amount of money on a check? Well, <laughs> well, the funny part is I played the USAM out there in 1980, and I actually shot 87 on that golf course. And so the next time around, I shoot 63. So, I mean, I walked in, I said, well, I got better, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but it, it was an amazing week to win on that golf course with all the history. And I thought I'd made all the money in the world at that time, 540,000 was a lot of money and it still is a lot of money. Uh, I, I always kind of, when I played the PGA tour, I tried not to think of the money. Uh, I tried to feel like they were points in my mind to kind of block off the fact that this is a lot of money. Uh, and now they're playing for ooh, so much money that it yeah. is a factor. Uh, I don't th think you could put that out of your mind, but that week was a magical week. You know, I opened up, play with Gil Morgan that first day and shot 63, didn't play that great the second round and sat actually was in, uh, on TV, sitting with Peter Jacobson in the booth as Norman, I think he bogeyed 16, uh, didn't birdie 17. He knocked it over the green at 18, which I felt like it was over. Uh, and the funny part is Ben Nelson, who is from Mississippi was the tour official. And he was actually behind the green with me. And I had no one to hug because Sissy was pregnant with Thomas. So I just hugged Ben. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of kind of fun to have him there. And then I won at Greensboro uh, a couple of years later. Ben was there again. I hugged him again. So I said, you know, they're going to start making you follow me around. But uh, yeah, that was such a great memory out there at the Olympic Club. That's awesome. And Jim, just a couple more before I let you go. Sure. But we're a few weeks away from the Masters. You got to play in the tournament a few times. What's it like going out to the mailbox and finding that invitation mm. sitting in there? Oh, it's incredible. Uh, you know, you dream as a kid to just play the golf course uh, and then get the invite. And I was fortunate to only, I played it five times. A lot of guys played it more. And I actually did the coverage last year uh, live from, and I walked in there and I was just like, gosh, if this is heaven, I can't wait. You know, it's just such an incredible place. All the history. We had Jack Nicholas on, Tom Watson, Raymond Floyd. We had all these great, past champions on the set and we got to interview them and I start thinking to myself man I'm a lucky guy I'm sitting there and I had so much fun our Mark Loomis who uh, is one of our top guys there at the golf channel sending me a text are you having any fun I said man I am just having the greatest time ever and the kids were having fun watching me enjoy it and it was just it's an incredible place uh, when you look at all the history and I probably could have played better there but man it, it just was an honor to play there uh and it you know, it was just great memories. I shot 67 and led the first round 
that I'd ever played there. And, and I remember my father-in-law and my mother-in-law were coming back, uh, driving over, and they didn't believe that I was leading. They were shocked that I was leading. And I played with Lanny Watkins the next day and a twosome in that last group. And I was so nervous. I was just trying not to miss the guy. <laughs> I got off to kind of a slow start. But uh, all in all, just an incredible week. Uh, played well enough to get invited back the next year. And it's just uh, – I, I forgot how hilly and how tough that golf course is when I walked it last year uh, uh, when I was there for the coverage. As you mentioned, you had the first round lead. You shot an opening round 67. What's it like to to be a guy that's sleeping on the lead at the Masters? Well, that's the hard part. It's the Masters. You're in the lead. I couldn't sleep. You know, I was just sitting there going like, I've got to slow my mind down. Uh, and I was new to that. I, I just wasn't quite ready to go. And I think that's why I got off to such a slow start. Uh, that second day, uh, the last day, Roly Massimino, the old uh, basketball yeah. coach at uh, Villanova, was there every day. We had a routine where he'd walk down, shake my hand, and we're walking up 17. I'll never forget the last day. I need, I think, to play the last two holes, one over to get back in the next year. I said, Coach, I'm so nervous. I can't even see straight. He said, just relax. Just enjoy it. You know, just go out there. You've done the time in. You've put the time in. Just go out and have a great time. I parted the last two holes. Uh, but it was just an amazing part to have my whole family there that just enjoy that whole week. Uh, and, and Mary Langdon was a baby. I carried her down during the par three tournament. So I keep bringing back family, yeah. but that's a big part of my life. Uh, and, and they're a big part of my life and, and, and they're a big part of my career. Uh, and I, you know, I, I wish I would have maybe won more when they got older. Cause sometimes I think they think I got one of my trophies on eBay, but, uh, <laughs> there is video coverage that does prove that I did win those. And that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about being a part of the Masters. Did you get to have family out there at the par three and get the little jumpsuits for your kids and all well, of that? We did because I had Mary Lane. Actually, my wife made that little jumpsuit. The coolest part is I didn't like to practice, and I was not a big practicer. I loved to play, and I would go and actually play the par three after each practice round and stay out there all day long until Thursday. Then you couldn't play it. But they allowed me to take my family out there even on Monday, Tuesday, and before Wednesday, uh, the par three tournament and walk around and just be part of that. And I just, uh, you know, I just, like I said, when you finally get there, you have to pinch yourself. And I remember the first time I was there, I actually was on inside the PGA tour. We had the cameras on us as we drove up Magnolia lane. And it wasn't the same as if it was just me and sissy driving up. Uh, but it was just an amazing, you know, time. I played the practice round with Freddie couples, Ian Baker Finch. I always tried to play with a veteran who had had success there so I could learn the golf course, pick their brain. Uh, and that's one of the things that I was able to do. And, and uh, I guess I've been getting long winded, but the coolest moment is I'm walking up 18, the third round with Jack Nicholas. I'll never forget walking wow. up there with him side by side. And I said, go ahead, Jack. And he said, no, walk up here with me. And it gives me chills to think of that. It's, here's a guy that, I mean, I've been such a, hero, you know, he's such a hero of mine. And, and just to walk up there side by side, it was such a special moment. For me, just a kid from Indiana to allow me to walk up there with one of the greatest players, and if not the greatest player that ever played the game. Wow, what a moment. Jim, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with you, whether it's following you online or it's on social media. Well, I do a podcast called Only One Shot Golf. It hits a lot of college golf, a lot of instructors. It's basically trying to see what separates the elite golfer from the rest. Love having the people on. It's been a lot of fun. It's something I do kind of in the offside, off the Time off when I'm not working Golf Channel. I'll go do about everything for them, PGA Tour, LPGA, do some studio work. But like I said, I think it's my eighth year with Golf Channel, and I, I love it, and that's why I, I enjoy it so much because it does keep me in the game. But the big thing, I'm enjoying it, and that makes that job a lot easier. It doesn't even seem like a job to me. 
And you're great at it, by the way, just like Tom Patrick said. Thank you. So thank you so much for that. Jim, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. Always have a good time when you're here. I hope we get the privilege of doing it again soon. Well, it's a privilege to be on your show. You're one of the best. And I appreciate you just asking me and being part of it. Uh, You're the best, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. That is the great Jim Gallagher Jr. What a tremendous player and an even better guy. Tom Patrick said it you know, prior to Jim coming on, and he's 100% right about that. So richly deserving on being in both of those Hall of Fames. Again, make sure you're following him on Twitter. At GallagherJRGC is where you can do it there. And like I say, I hope we get the privilege of having Jim back as part of the show again real soon. Before I get to my next guest, John Mahaffey, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And they're offering 10% off their brand new range of training aids. I visited their booth and loved their breaking ball putting mat, which allows you to practice breaking putts at home on a traditional putting mat. I've got mine right here in my studio. They've just launched their own golf glove, and they're offering Next on the Tee listeners 10% off the whole range. Use code CHRIS10 for 10% off. That offer expires March 31st of this year. Check out their great array of training aids online at meandmygolf.com. All right, now back in next on the tee with me is 1978 PGA champion and 1986 players champion, John Mahaffey. Let me remind you about John's background. He's from Kerrville, Texas, played his college golf at the University of Houston, where he was named first team All-American in 1969 and 70. John won the individual title at the 1970 National Championship, helped the Cougars to win back-to-back national championships in 69 and 70 earned his degree in psychology. He was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1976, and he turned pro in 1971. Won 10 times on the PGA Tour, including that 1978 PGA Championship, coming from seven strokes back with 14 holes to play to win in a playoff. He won once out there on the Champions Tour. He was a member of the 1979 Ryder Cup team. In 1983, he was inducted into the Texas Golf Hall of Fame. He's written a couple of wonderful books, Hogan's Boy, A Journey in Golf, plus a mystery novel titled Shafted, which is going to become a series of mystery books. You can check those out on johnmahaffeyauthor.com or, of course, over on Amazon. And I'm excited that I get to have John back as part of the show again tonight. Hey, John, how are you, my friend? Chris, I am doing great. So nice of you to have me back. So, John, obviously we're here in, in Players' Championship Week. got to bring back some great memories for you from your win in 1986, which didn't come easy, by the way, because nothing does as TBC Sawgrass. <laughs> is this a little extra special week for you? It always is. Uh, I, I can remember back. Uh, it, it was always a good golf course for me because I, I hit a lot of fairways and 
I, I was always a good iron player, but uh, that's that specific year, I was playing very well. And uh, I remember making the cut and, and uh, shooting 65 on Saturday, which actually put me in position. I think I was still four back of Larry Mize at the time, but it gave me an outside chance to win the golf tournament. And, uh, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, uh, for, for Larry on the, on the final round, he kind of fell. I wouldn't say he fell apart. He had some unlucky breaks on the back nine and, uh, I was able to catch him, but I will tell you one thing, Chris, it, uh, I noticed in, in one of your teases, uh, for next on the tee that you had a picture of me on the 18th hole, the final yes. hole, 72nd hole. That picture I'm looking at right now on my desk, that tee shot was the best tee shot in my entire career that I ever hit under pressure. Is that right? When it, absolutely. I had a friend of mine, we were sitting in the locker room before the final round, and he said, okay, answer this. What are you going to do if you get to the final hole and you've got a chance to win a golf tournament and you have the honor? The smartest shot, I, I said, my go-to shot's a fake. But that doesn't fit that hole. I'm not going to start it over the over the water and try to cut it back. That's not going to happen. I said, I, I, it's a draw. It, the draw is the shot to hit. He said, why don't you make yourself a promise to do that? So when I reached the 18th hole, I did have the honor. And I looked over at my caddy and I thought to myself, do you have the courage to do this? And I stepped over on the left side of the tee and made up my mind to do it. And it's the it's a tee shot that I hit that I it's just like I drew it up in my mind that hit the downslope and took off. It was against the wind. And I mean, it could have been in a better, per, in uh, a more perfect position for a second shot. And wow. it led, I think it led to my win because Larry missed the, the, the fairway right and ended up making bogey and I had a two putt par. So, you know, it, uh, but to, to have that happen and, and to think back so many years ago when, when I, when I was talking with Mr. Hogan in his office and uh, he had a, uh, a list of the tournaments that for the, for the upcoming year, you know, and, and he said, uh, he said, you know, which tournaments are your favorite tournaments? And I said, well, and I checked off about 25 of the 40 or whatever. And he threw it and he tore it up. And he says, every golf tournament ought to be, every tournament golf course ought to be your favorite. He said, well, you and I go and practice all the time. All right. And I see you hitting all these golf shots. Then I watch you on TV and you're so one dimensional. Why don't you play the shots you know how to play? Finally. On that last hole at Sawgrass, I did that, you know, so that's kind of a memory that I share with Mr. Hogan, I guess, in a way. Well, John, let's let's take that a half a step further, because as a as a guy that has never been in that arena, but stepping up on that 18th tee and all that water down the left hand side and then, you know, kind of bends back, you know, to the left. I mean, there's a lot of negative thoughts can come into your mind about that water. How do you block that out? And then for you to hit a hook, you know, that could very easily <laughs> if you miss it by a little. Oh yeah. Well, it's easy to pull hook. It isn't it? If you yes. hit a hook. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think the fact that I, I had it in my mind when I, when I walked on the golf course in the morning, I mean that afternoon, sorry. Yep. And uh, when I got to the tee, I was focused on hitting that tee shot. So I think everything else was sort of out of my mind. I picked a target that I wanted to start the ball on. And it went right over that with a draw. And uh, like I said, it was hot. It hit and it took off. And, you know, that was, it's just such a great feeling to pull off a shot under pressure that you pictured. Yeah, no doubt. And as you mentioned, Larry Mize led the tournament by four going into the final round. In fact, he was still three up with four holes to go. But I read that you went over to him after you won 
and you said you were sorry. And I get that, you know, he 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 struggled over the last few holes and all of that sort of thing. But you still had to put yourself in position to win. You still had to play well. And you never gave up on the thought that you could still win, even when you were down three with four holes to go. Talk about sort of that range of emotions over the last few holes from being down and out of it, essentially, in, in all for all intents and purposes, to standing over about a three-footer to win it. Well, that's golf, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you think about it. You're really never done till it's all over. I mean, the, <laughs> who knows what a guy's going to make on the last hole? You know, you may birdie the last hole and be, well, for instance, in the PGA, being seven back with uh, 14 right. holes to play, you know, and, and all of a sudden everything turned in my favor and against Tom Watson. Those things happen. I don't know if it's the golf gods or what it is, but uh, they blessed me a lot of a few times. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and uh, that was certainly one of them there. Uh, but I, you know, when I when I went over and told Larry that I was sorry, I, I had a similar situation, reversed roles uh, in the 1975 U.S. Open when Lou Graham beat me on Monday. And I remember sitting at the presentation and uh, Patsy Graham, his wife, was behind me and she tapped me on the shoulder and she leaned over and she says, I just want to tell you one thing. She said, John, you're a young man with a lot of talent. This was Louis's last chance. You're going to have plenty of chances, plenty of opportunity. Just hang in there. I thought that was so gracious. Yeah. I've heard her say that, and it stuck with me. And you know, golf is a game you fight till the very end, but then you know, and then you 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 congratulate the the players that you played with, you know, on a good fight, and you love that. Uh, that's part of the deal, the competition. I know that uh, Jim Gallagher was talking about competition. That's the one thing I miss. I don't play golf anymore at all because of hip issues and so forth, and I'm writing like crazy, but uh, books like crazy, and not always about golf. But anyway. You know, it, it's just a. I, I miss the camaraderie. I miss the competition coming down the last holes, last nine holes with a chance to win. And I'm, I'm wondering, did, did you return the favor to Larry? Because you know, Larry would obviously go on the next year to win the Masters. But I, I, I read that he had said that you know, after losing to you at, at the Players, that he just didn't know how to, didn't know how to finish. He got, to, he had to learn how to finish. And obviously, he finished really well. And at the 87 masters, did you talk to him about that? I don't, but that, yeah, I'm glad you brought something about not knowing how to finish. Uh, I don't bring this up very often because it, it was kind of hurtful at the time, but I think it meant something to me later in 1976 in the U S open Atlanta athletic club. I lost to Jerry Pate on the last three holes. Uh, and in the press conference, and uh, he was obviously in there first being the, the, the champion. And uh, I came in afterwards and, you know, I heard him say something. One of the uh, the reporters said, you know, do you feel sorry for John Mahaffey? Because, uh, you know, he's been so close uh, to winning U.S. Opens back to back. He said, no, he's got to learn how to finish it off. Well, ironically, <laughs> Jerry was one of the guys I beat in the playoff for the PGA, which, <laughs> I, you, know, <laughs> you know, that's the irony of the game, isn't it? Though? I mean, Tom Watson was one of my best friends. And I got a little revenge on Jerry Pate. Wonderful week all the way around in a tournament that changed my life. But. You know, that's it. That's just the nature of the beast. That's golf. Yeah. You know, how did winning that 78 PGA change your life? Well, I look at it this way. Uh, my entire life had been a battle in a way, and I'm not going to get in too deeply into it. But I, uh, I always had to struggle being strong to play sports and stuff like that. And I always was good at sports. I lettered in every in every sport I played. Uh, I had basketball scholarship offers before and uh, and, and won to University of Houston to play golf. and. There was no doubt where I was going at five foot nine. 
I was going to play <laughs> golf at the best golf school in the country at that time. Um, but you know, it, it's you, you get a mindset that that, that you that you're never going to give up, and you're going to even though you're struggling, you're going to hang in and, and and do what it takes to get there. Yeah. And John, I want to switch gears a little bit. I, I want to get your thoughts on everything going on in the PGA Tour. Obviously, this this live thing has really turned things upside down over the last twelve months or so. What what what's your thought about where we're at right now in the game of golf? Uh, it's, it's confusing at best. I'll say that. Uh, I, I never imagined it would get to this point, but to me, I, I got, I've been thinking about it for quite a while and I'm not really trying to take sides on this, but just look at it, you know, uh, realistically, uh, you know, it's a choice, not a mandate for these players to go to live, right? Yep. Choices have consequences, correct? Yes. What comes to mind to me is, okay. Who's your Huckleberry? You know, who has your back when you do this? You know, you're making a career commitment into this. And there's a lot, there's some people that have gone over there that will never be forgotten in the game because they've got a tremendous record. You know, they're Hall of Fame players and stuff like that. I understand that. But what I wonder about is the, the young guys that go over there. And, uh, you know, they don't have a chance to establish themselves on the PGA Tour, tour still the best in the world. People still want to come over here and dominate still. I mean, look at, and Jim touched on this too. How many, one, how many great players uh, are standing up for this tour uh, because of what it is and how deep this goes. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's amazing, but I'd like to touch on a couple of things that kind of, uh, you know, I read all about this stuff. I'm never going to get away from loving golf and, and reading about it. But, you know, a couple of people have talked about this, these not being original ideas that the tours come up with. And I agree that some of them are a little bit are, are a little bit might look like they're copying somebody. But I was on the policy board back to back in 1981 to 1986. All right. And during that period of time, Dean Beeman was commissioner. Dale DeMitt was chairman of the board and um, TPC Sawgrass opened in 1980. So in 1981, we approved the TPC network. All right. What that did was it guaranteed income for, for reserves, funds, purses, and retirement for the players. All right. And plus building golf courses for the for the for the uh the general public and in members. Uh it eliminated renting golf courses. Those savings went to reserves and to purses. And then we 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 approved the uh the player deferred compensation retirement program, probably the most innovative one and still is in the game in, in sports history. I mean, one of the guys, the independent directors, Bob Kirby, that I sat next to to try to learn a little bit about business, said, this is incredible to have this. I mean, to, uh, this is just the best thing you could have ever done. So, you know, uh, and still, and back then we had invitationals, uh, limited fields. All right. You have a tournament of champions. It was a limited field. At one point, we only paid 70 players, regardless of the cut size. And the top 60 were exempt from the tour. So there's not a whole lot of difference in a lot of this stuff. And from what I'm reading, some of the, the top players are saying, and just like Jim Colbert told us back in the day, just play better. <laughs> Indeed. John, you were around when when Greg Norman was was first pitching the World Golf Tour, weren't you? Yes. Yes. What what, what was it like back then? Because from what I've been reading about it, players talked all about it. There were several meetings about it. And the, 
And essentially, Mr. Palmer got everyone together and said, all right, we're done with this. This is over. That's exactly right. And you know what? And, and during the time, and you know, I'm blessed too. Jim talks about when he played, I got to play with all these guys. I mean, all the way from Hogan, Sneed, and Nelson, all the way up to, yeah, to, up to Tiger and Phil. I didn't play very much with either, or I didn't play with either one of those. But, you know, I knew all these guys. Nicholas and, and uh, Player and Palmer could have gone and started their own tour and, and picked and had handpicked who they wanted to take with them, you know, and done that. But they didn't because they realized what the PGA Tour had done. They, they it had built a name for them. Granted, IMG, you know, with Mark McCormick right. uh, really helped Arnold Palmer. But Arnold Palmer created his own image with with his charge and, you know, and, and his personality and his charisma uh, and never forgetting a friend. I mean, Arnold Palmer was unique. Uh, uh, an unreal man that I, I, I love to be able to have called a friend, you know, John, I want to go back to another one of your victories, uh, 1979 at the Bob Hope desert classic that year, the tournament was played at Tamaris country club, which was a private club that had 65 original investors that included Jack Benny, George Burns, Danny Kay, and the Marx brothers. Ben Hogan was, was the club's first pro Sinatra, lived there on the fairway on 17, Sammy Davis right around the corner from him. What was it like not only winning that tournament, but doing it at that site? Uh, well, it was terrific going out there every year. For some reason, Dolores Hope loved me, you know, not physically, but I mean, she, she, <laughs> uh, she was a terrific lady and she, she just, she thought I was cute, I guess, back in that day. And uh, I won the tournament in 79. I won it again in 1984. All the parties that, that the Hope, uh, put on for the celebrities and everything. Fortunately, luckily I was invited to go to. So, um, I got to meet all these stars in, in a different light, you know, and, uh, got to be friends with quite a few of them and, uh, played golf with a whole lot of them. And it was just such a neat experience to, to, to get down it. I mean, these people were human beings. <laughs> I mean, not like you see them on the big screen or in television, but you know, have, and, you know, you're wanting to ask them how it was to play in the great escape or whatever, you know, whatever movie they were in and they're interested in, well, I'm still fading the slicing the ball too much. What do I do here? So they were so much interested in <laughs> golf. We had that in common and it was so much fun, uh, in that day and age to be able to play with all those people and to be around people like Bob Hope and, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. And all these people, Glenn Campbell, all these people, uh, Andy Williams, all these people came to champions. All right. When I was working for Jimmy DeMerit and Jackie Burke. So I knew these people before I ever got on the tour. I mean, you don't think I was lucky. Wow. <laughs> John, you also won the J.C. Penny Mixed Team Classic with Joanne Carner back in 1982, where he recently learned that a similar event is going to be back in December with the Grant Thornton Invitational. What do you think about the return of that event? And what was it like being paired with Joanne Carner? She was terrific. I love playing with her. She had more courage. Normally, or my experience had been in, in a lot of times when playing in that, in that event, my partner, if, if we hit it in a bunker, always wanted me to play it. If you know, if I, if that was the opportunity. Well, I remember the last, last round, first hole, uh, she drove it right in the trees and I kind of, I had, the only shot I had was to hook it into the bunker and I drove it in a fairway and she hit a not so good a shot that bounced in the bunker. So I got out my sandwich and I'm walking up to the green to the green. She says, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, I'm going to play this shot. No, you're not. 
She says, I'm damn good at this. Watch this. We have, hits it out there about six inches. We tap it in. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's, she, she just, she played golf so aggressively and with so much confidence. It, it, it just kind of rubbed off on you. And uh, we had to par the last hole to win. And I remember we couldn't reach this par five and two. And uh, I, I laid up short of the bunker. She wanted a 95 yard shot and she hit it fat. And now I had about a 15 yard pitch over this bunker, which wasn't my favorite shot at that time. And I hit it about, oh, I guess about eight feet. She drilled that right in the middle of the hole. Wow. I mean, I, I, it was, it was so neat playing with that lady. She, and seriously, she's a lady. John, you mentioned you're doing a lot of writing these days. You've already written two great books. Give us an update. What's going on with the Shafted series? They're going great. Uh, Shafted, you mentioned, and, and Hogan's yep. Boy, uh, The Journey in Golf, that's, that's nonfiction. But I really wanted to start writing fiction because I wanted to get the, 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 the writer involved. I wanted to be able to sort of invent my own uh, plots and things like that. So I write a little bit about what life inside the ropes is for, for professional golf. But, you know, in the, in, the real world, in the real world, outside the ropes, it's a whole lot different. And um, the stakes are higher in life, is, and it's like life and death. So my characters are uh, the McCall family, and they're, they're caught in between these two worlds. And uh, so it, it's really kind of neat to, to throw some golf in there, but also these guys are fighting crime, cyber crime, and whatever. So Unfinished Business is out. That's my second book. It just came out. Uh, my third book, Dead Quiet, is in editing right now. Exoner exoneration is in pre-edit wow restitution is in progress i'm writing a book it's still in progress uh called outmaneuvered and there was a, a guy by the name of maxwell silver who was a friend of the mccall's and uh he had something uh, his wife was murdered and he had to drive he was a professional golfer on the tour and he went in and got a law degree and um he uh he worked in conjunction with the uh, with nemesis to try to find the people that killed her uh, or to bring justice to the people that killed his wife. So, you know, I'm busy. No <laughs> doubt. My goodness. That's a it's lot fun. of writing. Yeah, it is. Especially with my editors. They don't like a lot of stuff. I, I got to rewrite so much of it, but that's, <laughs> that's the way to do it. I mean, if I'd have started out at 25 years old doing this, it'd have been a different deal, but I'm learning all the way. There you go. John, let our listeners know. Remind them again. How can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you online and on social media? Well, the best place to go is johnmahaffeyauthor.com. And uh, that'll get it. That's where my webpage is. You can order books from there and it, it gives updates and uh, covers the whole deal. There you go. John, it's always a thrill to have you as part of the show. I get excited every time you say yes, that you'll come back on the show. I look forward to it very much. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming back and being a part of the show tonight. You know, I love it. I, I mean, you're the best. You know that, right? I appreciate I'm serious. I, it's fun to be on here, and I'll do it anytime you want. Well, I appreciate that very much, John. Take all care, right. my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. See you, John. That is the great John Mahaffey. 16 professional wins, including a PGA and a Players Championship. And as you just heard, one heck of a great guy. He's so great to talk to, folks. He's an out, outstanding person, an outstanding writer, and was one of the great golfers of the 1970s and the 1980s. Again, make sure on Amazon or on 
johnmahaffeyauthor.com. Go out and get all these books and get excited about the ones that are in the hopper that are going to be along just uh, shortly after that. I'm already looking forward to the next time I'm privileged enough to have John as part of the show. Hopefully, like I say, that's very soon. Before I get to my next guest, Briston Peterson, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to adelgolf.com. And are you looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They're both low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. That's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. All right, now next on the tee with me is Briston Peterson. Briston is the co-founder of On Point Golf, one of the great products I got introduced to during the PGA Merchandise Show. Our mutual good friend, Leslie Ann Wade, said, you got to see this. And then I saw it and I immediately fell in love with the concept. She introduced me to Briston and now I'm thrilled to have him with me here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Briston, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be on your show and uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Briston, before we talk about On Point, I read that your uncle is the one who introduced you to the game of golf, and he was a top player up in Binghamton, uh, in the Binghamton, New York area. Talk about how he got you started. Yeah, so uh, my uncle Bill Corba, uh, my mother, my mother's side of the of the family, um, used to host uh, players that would attend the Endicott Open up in Binghamton. And he had the likes of uh, Lee Trevino, uh, Gary McCord, and Frank Connor uh, stay at his house. And at a young age, I had the ability to attend the event, uh, stay at the house, sit around the kitchen table and hear the stories from, from the greats of uh, Lee Trevino and, and Frank Connor. I don't know if you remember Frank Connor, but he was the only sure. guy to ever play uh play golf in the US Open uh and uh tennis in the US Open and um uh so I had the I sort of got it injected into the game uh I played team sports growing up played soccer at a high level but uh really fell in love with golf uh later later in my years here so with guys like Trevino Connor and Gary McCord around the house boy there had to be a lot of great stories that you either got to sit at the table and here or over here. What are some of your favorites? <laughs> well, some of them I can't repeat. Uh, and you got to remember, <laughs> I was, uh, I was a little bit younger back then, but, uh, just, just, you know, used to hear some of the stories inside the ropes and, and, uh, just everything from sort of traveling from event to event, uh, to, uh, you know, to what their thought process was about playing on tour and, and um, some of the great stories that uh, some of them I can't repeat all of them here on uh, on your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you censoring yourself, <laughs> Briston. Let's 
let's set the scene a little bit. Talk about what on point is, what the on point ball marker is and and what sets it apart from everything else on the market. Very unique product. Yeah. So I like to say we own the three-dimensional space between the putter head and the golf ball. Uh, what it is, it's a three-dimensional golf ball marker with a removable coin. It's approved for use according to the rules of golf as defined by the USGA and RNA. And uh, it's a three-dimensional marker that has an XYZ access as opposed to a two-dimensional marker, you know, like a poker chip or a, or a, or a coin. And um, our brand ambassador is, is Jim Furyk. And in a short order here, we're shaking a lot of trees in the industry and and uh, we're basically reinventing the way on people think about marking their golf ball on the green. And uh, it's been a fun ride and um, we're off to a great trajectory here. And Brisson, I'm a little over a month shy of my 58th birthday and what captured my attention about you know the, the marker and the 3D and raised surface of, of your ball markers, it seems like it would be easier then a 2D, you mentioned a poker chip or the, the the flat ball markers that we're all used to seeing. It would it would seem to me that it would make it easier to line up your ball, find the line, and and get your get your ball rolling on the line that you see. Is that accurate? Yeah. So uh, it's it's fundamental technology. Um, there's a process called spatial acuity that when you engage with a two dimensional object versus a three dimensional object our three-dimensional ball marker really drives the player to focus on their intended line. And putting is all about line and pace. And uh, if you're more confident in your intended line, both through a process, as I said, called spatial acuity, where it's the distance between your ball mark and the hole, uh, where you're constantly engaging with the three-dimensional object as opposed to two-dimensional object, you're going to putt with more confidence and golf is a sport that is, is built on a series of uh, a term called marginal gain and our product and our technology creates marginal gain over somebody that is using a flat two-dimensional poker chip as opposed to our on-point markers, which are three-dimensional. So um, we're receiving a a lot of accolades here early on in our our, uh, our our launch of our business, both at the amateur level and at the professional level uh, and everything in between. And one of the issues of the game of golf is the pace of play. Uh, and the pace of play, especially on the greens, um, by using on point, it forces the player to constantly engage with their line so that when they're ready and it's their time to putt, they can stand up and execute their putt with a little bit more confidence in their intended line. And uh, it will help improve the pace of play. Kristen, you mentioned marginal gain. Talk about what that is. The marginal gain is a is an equation that's used in sports, um, probably more so in golf than any other sport out there. That if I'm playing a game with you or I'm playing a match with you, and I have you know better golf shoes, or I have a better shaft in my driver, or I have a better golf ball, or I'm using technology to my advantage. I just created marginal gain over you. Uh, and if I could sink a putt, avoid three putts, make a birdie putt, whatever the case may be, by incorporating my on-point marker in, into my play, and you're, you're just using a flat two-dimensional marker, I just created marginal gain over you by 
by my technology and, and my modality that I used into play. And uh, the entire golf industry is built off of that principle. As you said, when you see this thing in the, the PGA show, and if you've ever been to the event in Orlando and you walk around the acres and acres of, of, uh, of, of, of various manufacturers and what the latest technology is, what the latest clubs are, whatever the case may be, the entire industry, like any other sport, is, is more built on fundamentally trying to improve your game through technology, through products, through the incorporation of, of, of various products um, to help improve your play, which ultimately will help lower your score. And um, on point marker, I've, I've seen it uh, in use time and time again. And once people understand how to use the modality and incorporate it into their putting routine, um, it's been very successful in making players have more confidence on executing their putt. Christian, you mentioned Jim Furyk a moment ago, and he's using on-point ball markers now out there on the Champion Store. How'd you come across Jim? Yeah, so this is a great story. So um, a good friend of mine um, gets invited to Jim puts on a, a tournament at the end of every season called the Jack Leg. And he invites 24 of his best friends. And um, it's, a, it's a time for Jim where he can download off the tour and uh, invite his friends and just sort of relax. And um, uh, my, my good friend from high school uh, had some prototypes of, uh, of the on-point marker. And uh, Ray happened to be uh, in the same group with Jim. And Jim goes up to Ray and says, hey, Ray, what is that? Ray tells him the whole story. Unbeknownst to me, Jim goes out and uses the product. And before I had a business deal structured with Jim, um, uh, where Jim really broke the product out in public is where um, uh, he, he used it at the players' event, where he finished second to Rory and, uh, and, uh, and used it on all of his longer putts. And um, literally, we captured lightning in a bottle on that day. And, um, uh, we've structured a strategic relationship with Jim. He's our main product brand ambassador, uh, for on point and, um, and the rest is history. In addition to Jim, Briston, I, I have to believe you're getting feedback from golfers at all levels. What are some of the other success stories that uh, have made their way back to you? Well, there's been some great success stories through, uh, um, just through the product and through the use of the product. And I'd like to say our company is growing organically. Um, a, a great success story back in uh, this past year in uh, 2022, uh, we were just voted one of the top 10 selling products at uh, golf magazine, golf.com. And um, uh, that's been a, a really great success. Uh, we got written up twice in, in, in uh, last year's publications in, uh, in golf magazine. And um, you can imagine anytime there's a little kerosene put on the fire, uh, you know, sales go through the roof. Uh, we do all of our uh, sales online through Shopify. Um, and um, anybody can visit our website at onpointgolf.us and look at the various products and the various SKUs that we have to offer. But some of the best success stories we've had have been, um, you know, some memos or emails that I receive from just average players like you and I that enjoy the game, love the game of golf, 
and um, and write back and say, you know, hey, really love the product. I'm I'm passing this on to my friends, or I'm buying gift packages, sending them, uh, you know, to my foursome that I play with. And I'm seeing this around the world. I'm I'm getting emails and text messages from uh, from people in England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and all across the country. So uh, it's a it's a very rewarding um, uh, business to be in when you're changing the way fundamentally that people think about how do you mark your golf ball on a green and uh, what does everybody do in the game of golf? We all mark our golf ball on the green. Brisson, talk about some of the different variations of the product. I mean, you have ones that, that are very similar to the TP5 picks. You've got Optic Yellow, which is one of my favorites. You've got the, the three rail that looks like the Callaway golf ball. Talk about the different styles of markers that you have available? Yeah, so you don't necessarily need to be a line putter, meaning um, uh, that you you know put lines on your, your golf ball, depending on the golf ball that you use. But if you can imagine any alignment technology that is put on a golf ball and uh, any alignment technology that is put on a putter head, we virtually have uh, probably about 70 or 80 different SKUs but we do not want to confuse the market at this point. Um, uh, but our, our number one seller, uh, you mentioned um, the Callaway triple track ball. Uh, we have a three rail uh, 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 domed golf ball marker that fits seamlessly between the Odyssey putter head and the Callaway chrome soft ball, uh, which, uh, which basically aligns with the three rail. That's our number one seller basically basically on about a three to one margin. Um, but if you can imagine, you know, what do most people mark their golf ball with? If they happen to be a line putter, they typically pull out a, a black Sharpie, a red Sharpie, um, or a blue Sharpie. And, um, our, our next most popular ones are, um, the single line thin, uh, domed marker that either has a, a black single line rail or the single line red rail. Um, but we also have units that align seamlessly with, uh, with the TPX ball. And if you look at what, uh, Taylor made, you know, just recently lost launched here with some other color schemes that they're putting, as you can imagine, when we see a major golf ball manufacturer sort of setting the pace on how they're using alignment technology into the golf ball, we're bringing that same technology into our patented three-dimensional ball marker. Um, and, uh, and just really owning the space between the putter head and the golf ball. And Brisson, you guys have branched out into other things. You've got golf gloves and towels and putter grips. Talk about the other things that you have available. Yeah. So, um, that's really come by customer demand. Um, uh, so we have, uh, we have putter grips, we have a one Oh two Oh and a three Oh putter grip uh, that, that we offer, uh, we have hats that if we could keep them in stock, um, uh, we got a new order coming in of hats. Uh, a lot of people are, are, are very fond of our on point logo and, uh, we have patented and trademarked the products. Uh, we've, uh, we've trademarked the on point logo and just the term on point. Um, you know, it, if you look it up, it, it has, uh, a lot of different connotations, you know, that, that, you know, cross pollinate with sports. 
uh, or, you know, that person was on point or that putter was on point, or that was an on point, you know, golf shot, whatever it is. Um, so we really tried to be creative on how we, you know, named our company. Um, and we're being mindful of the products that we bring onto our website. Um, uh, we, we just launched some, uh, launched some, uh, putter heads, uh, both in a blade style as well as a mallet style. Uh, those sold out pretty rapidly. Um, so we just try to listen to our customers, but our number one business is, is being, being, uh, the only three dimensional ball marker that, uh, that golf has to offer. You mentioned the number of SKUs that you guys have. I also read that you've got a backlog of products that you're waiting to release. Is, is there some a peek under the tent we can get? What are some of the things that uh, we can look forward to coming out next? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, uh, variants and colors that you're seeing on golf balls now. Um, there's a lot of two tone colors that you see. Um, uh, the 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 ability to customize our 28 millimeter coin um, it distinguishes us from a lot of different uh, ball markers out there. So we can custom brand the coin with any corporate logo, charity event. Uh, uh, golf club, you name it. That that's a, that's a big seller for us on the ability to customize the the the, the removable coin on the bottom of the marker. Uh, but what I don't want to do at this stage is is confuse the customer with too many SKUs. Um, I think um, we know what our number one, number two, number three sellers are. There's another unit that we have on the website called the Oreo. It's the inverse colors. Uh, so it ha- it's a basically a, a dark metallic ball marker with a uh, with a white line. So a lot of people like the contrast and the ability when you mark your ball. What you're doing is you're really transferring that that knowledge that you're engaging with that that three dimensional ball marker. Then when you put your ball in play, all you're doing is transfer the knowledge that you create out of your ball marker into your ball. So. Um, we got a number of things we're doing. We continue to refine our patent, uh, you know, refined our art. And uh, we never want to protect our, or we never want to really close the door on our patent because I'm confident that somebody's going to come out of the woodwork and, and try and challenge us or try and steal the idea or, uh, or uh, because it's a pretty valuable space between the putterhead and the golf ball. And no major manufacturer has, uh, has addressed that space the way we're addressing it. I'm sure guys out on the Champions Tour have seen Jim using the product. Are there other players looking to become brand ambassadors? Yeah, we have a we have a number of brand ambassadors. Um, uh, we have some teaching instructors. Uh, Nick Bradley, that may, may be a name that you're familiar with. Um, yes, he was uh, he was at one time uh, he ran Traditions Golf Academy in uh, in Pinehurst. Uh, Nick is one of our top um, instructors. Uh, that there's a brand ambassador for us. Uh, he was, uh, he used to coach Justin Rhodes and, and Nick Faldo. Uh, he's written a, written a number of books. Uh, he's a big fan of ours and you can see some of his posts on our Instagram ap- uh, account on pointgolf.us. Um, but we're, we're getting some people on the corn Ferry tour. Um, I, I can't mention any names just yet, but, uh, uh, we're in some serious conversations with uh, some other folks on the PGA Tour. Um, we are talking to a couple people on the Live Tour, um, and you know our ability is to, to 
cross-pollinate um, as well as we're talking to some folks on uh, the LPGA tour. And, um, you know, but some of our best testimony comes from, uh, comes from our amateur golfers and, um, you know, guys like you and I that play golf every day and, you know, the ability to see your line, read your line, engage with your line so that when you're ready to execute your putt, you're executing it with more confidence. Kristen, remind our listeners again, how can they stay up to date with what's going on with the brand, both on your website and on social media as well? Yeah, so um, we're a big we're a big fan of Instagram. Uh, so we have a lot of followers on our Instagram account, which is uh, onpointgolf.us. And uh, our website is onpointgolf.us. And if anybody ever wants to contact me or get a hold of me with any special requests, uh, you can literally go right on to our Instagram account and uh, DM me some messages, as well as click on the link at the bottom of our, our webpage at onpointgolf.us and send me an email and I'll be more than glad to respond or pick up the phone and talk to you. Well, Rissen, it's been great having you as part of this show tonight. I hope you'll keep coming back, giving us updates on the, on the great things that you're working on and coming out with. Uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and to, uh, to know the brand as well. Yeah, Chris, thank, thank you very much. And uh, it's been an honor to be on this show. Take care, Briston. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay, you as well. Thank you. That was Briston Peterson, again, founder of On Point Golf. Check them out for yourselves online at onpointgolf.us. We hear so much about science these days. Why not let science help your golf game? I know I'm going to be picking up several for myself, I, you know, particularly the optic or uh, optic yellow. You guys know how much I love the yellow golf ball. Plus, my father's a big fan of the TP5 Picks golf balls from TaylorMade, so we'll be getting a few of those as well. Plus, as you guys know, black and white, official colors of the show, so the Oreo version that uh, Briston laid uh, mentioned to not that long ago, that's another great one that I'm looking forward to adding to my golf bag. So, again, let science help you and let On Point help you make more putts. Seems like a great thing to me, folks. It captured my attention at the PGA Merchandise Show. So, again, thank you to Leslie Ann Wade for setting Briston and I up. Hopefully we get the honor of uh, hearing about their new products here before too long. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Tom Patrick, Jim Gallagher Jr., John Mahaffey, and Briston Peterson for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are one of the top instructors in the game, a great friend of the show, and the host of the Golf Kingdom TV show, Rob Strano, will be back with me, as will 1983 PGA champion and two-time players champion Hal Sutton. I'll also get a return visit from 21-time winner between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, John Cook. Looking forward to having Cookie back as part of the show. Plus another new partner on the show, Construct Green. They're a new apparel company doing great things and doing it all environmentally friendly. So looking forward to having Paul Doherty from there as part of the show next week. Folks, I can't thank you enough for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.